Thanks for downloading the Sciatica podcast. I'm Tom Jessen. This week, I'm talking to Michelle Angus. Michelle is a consultant physiotherapist working for the complex spinal team in the emergency village of a tertiary spinal referral centre at Salford Royal NHS Foundation Trust. She leads the spinal fracture service and a team of advanced practitioner physiotherapists in the emergency department, acute orthopaedics and complex spines. She is the educational lead on the executive committee of the Advanced Practice Physiotherapy Network and she is on the National Back Pain Clinical Network Executive Committee as communication lead. In the podcast, Michelle tells me about how radicular pain is managed in the emergency department, her experience with injections, surgery and prescribing, including antineuropathics, and much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for agreeing to come on. I think I kind of uh, I saw a tweet from you on Twitter, and I just contacted you out of the blue. <laughs> so it's very kind of you to agree to. Okay, that's the way of the world these days, isn't it? Contacting random people on Twitter. Uh, yeah, and, and but as I said, I'm really looking forward to to the conversation, and um, there's a lot we want to get, uh, talk about today. Um, I said in the intro in your bio that you are uh, on the complex spine team at Salford and that's the first question I wanted to ask you what is a complex spine um, I don't know <laughs> neither did I before I started this job so they the it's it's very much how the surgeons describe it um so that the orthopedic spinal surgeons and some of the neurosurgeons um who the ones who use metal work um call the the cases they need metal work for complex spinal cases um whereas the ones they don't need metal work the the, the i want to say simple discs i'm sure no spinal surgery is simple yeah. um but, but they 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 would call those the the non-complex cases so um the complex case is usually a dual surgeon so they have two consultants in the operating theater um so it's it's not the patients that are complex it's the technical complexity of the operation um I see. so yeah so that's just the way what they call themselves and can and can you because as i say i read out your your bio but can you help me to understand a little bit more about the system that you work in yeah so um my i most hospitals across the the country have um a lot of back pain patients attending their ed um it's it's a general sort of I wouldn't say problem it's not necessarily a problem it's it, the patients are, are, are desperate and that's that's why they they come to ED um and we at Salford were no different to that the patients can get admitted under any so in Salford they would often get admitted under ED because um spines didn't want them until they had an MR scan showing something that they could put the knife to um if there wasn't anything they could put the knife to, that the spinal surgeons wouldn't even necessarily come and see them. Mm-hmm. Um, the ED consultants are really busy and they, they often haven't got the time to spend with the complex psychosocial patients putting the, that input in. Um, and they, they, from a meds perspective, they often got referred to the pain team. 
um, who, who would come and say, do this, this and this, and then disappear off. Um, the physios on, on there, again, are fantastic at what they do, but the patients were in too much pain to move. Um, so they were like, oh, no, we can't get them up mm. because the, the pain's a problem. Um, and th this isn't specific to us. This happens everywhere. There's a lack of ownership of these acutely distressed patients who are in often a lot of pain um, and often have, have got underlying reasons for that. But um, it was in our um, organisation, it was, uh, OK, we, what, what are we going to do with these patients? We, we have um, we have a lot of attendances to our ED um, on a daily basis and we uh, about 3,000 back pains come per, per year mm -hmm. um, and that works out about nine to ten a day um, and of those some got admitted some didn't and the ones that did admitted was staying for far longer than, than we wanted them to um, so my boss um, Victoria Dickens was in a meeting and said um, actually all that you're describing physios can do that and um, she was very much told, oh, you, these are complicated patients, Vicky. These are not these are not just back pains that have hurt themselves at the gym. Um, we can sort them out. These are complex ones that need lots and lots of lots and lots of input. And so she was like, well, give me a month. Let mm -hmm. me see if we can make a difference. Um, and my job kind of spawned from there, really. She, she got the funding from that to create a consultant post. There was a, um, a bit of a, a discussion about what grade the post needed to be. Um, and Vicky felt that just to have the the right voice at the right level, that the post really needed to be consultant level work. Um, there are advanced practitioners who cover when I'm off. Um, that's kind of just the clinical side rather than any of the, the developmental side and the links and, and that type of thing. So, um, so yeah, so my day job, if you like, um, is, is to manage back pain patients within both in the ED and also the ones that get admitted overnight mm -hmm. because the ED can't manage them um, mm -hmm. and, and sorting out their onward referral if need be, imaging them, prescribing, mm -hmm. getting them moving, um, the biopsychosocial assessment if required. So, so looking at the patient and putting them at the centre of the care as a holistic bundle rather mm -hmm. than each specialty doing their little bit, my mm -hmm. Um, surgical mechanical bit and my pain center psychological prescribing bit um, we pull all that together um, as physios doing primary care don't get me wrong we're not doing anything yeah. other physios are not doing but it's just in a different place and a different type model really mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how do you find um, the the system works in, in terms of the MDT so the, is there quite a good transition for patients between the different professions if needed yeah, so we, our team, so when I first started, we had, um, we didn't have a physio practitioner service. We had one physio who does some shifts in Panda, um, which is a paediatric service, but from a, a physio practitioner in ED, um, we didn't have that. There were advanced nurse practitioners um, and there were nurse practitioners who saw the minor injuries, minor illnesses, that type of thing, um, but there weren't advanced practice physios. Mm. Um, so since I've come into post, we've established that service and that service is now uh, hugely sort of successful. We've gone from covering um, 11, 7, 7 days a week. We're now doing 8 in the morning till 10 at night, 7 mm. days a week. Um, so that service has kind of been a 
quite a successful addition to, to what we deliver. So the patients that can be managed needy now are often managed by that team. Um, and I do shifts in that team. That's, you know, it's part of the, the job. Um, so the ones that admit, are admitted now are a bit more complicated. Um, but when I first started, there were a lot of back pains with radicular pain, um, radiating pain um, that just could no longer cope at home. Mm-hmm. So either they were either in absolute ag- acute agony mm-hmm. um, or they had been shopping around different places and um, weren't getting anywhere and, and mm-hmm. ended up coming 3D. Um, and the, the criteria for admission are that they've, A, they've got red flags and need further investigations. Um, they, they can't mobilise despite analgesia. Um, there's, there's a, there's a couple of sort of other caveats to that, but generally speaking, it, it, those those were the people who who got admitted. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the start, it was great because it, they were all probably disc protrusions, but but not six weeks. So from a nice guideline perspective, didn't need urgent inpatient right. imaging. They mm-hmm. needed education on on what was going on in their body, mm-hmm. um, an understanding of that, adequate analgesia, get moving, and, and get to physio. Um, mm. as an outpatient and then if it's not improving in six weeks absolutely we'll sort of scan out for you um via sort of our msk cats type interface service um so they they would then put on the right pathway um rather than coming to ed which is is not necessarily um mm. the greatest pathway for anyone mm-hmm. um so that that was kind of how it started and with some obviously some chronic pain patients that that were in a flare-up and needed help um, managing that flare-up. Mm. And again, ED is not the right place for, for managing that flare-up. Um, so it was, it was signpointing them, them in the right mm. place. Um, more recently, over time, since we've got more of established service and we have, we've I've done a lot of education with the team in ED, the the, um, the medics and the, the nurse practitioners, and there's less get admitted now, they're more complicated things now. Um, so, you know, with th- this last week, I've had someone who acute back pain and when he, he had a surgical abdomen, I ended up going to the surgeons and it, it mm. was the ED were just like, oh, yeah, he's got back pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he wasn't when I, I sort of got to him. And yeah. I'm by no means an expert in everything, but I know when something's not MSK, hopefully, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and can get the right people. And that's where we're so lucky. Yeah. Um, we've got what in a lot of MSK services, a lot of primary care services, you, you're on your own. I've you know, I can ring a urologist, I can ring a surgeon, yeah. I can get an ED consultant to come and help me, I can get an orthopod to come and help me, yeah. I can get a spinal surgeon to help me, you know, so yeah. it's it's great that I've got access yeah. to all these people. Um, and, and That's kind of one of the things I wanted in particular to talk to you about, because as I was saying off mic, my experience has been in a very good service, but it wasn't particularly integrated. So it was outpatients in a GP practice. So I would talk to the GP or I would refer to uh, CATS uh, internally and they would either come back to me if it was, you know, for whatever reason, or they would go off into, uh, I think you call it like the black hole. They don't really know what's happening out there, but you've kind of had this opportunity to um, work with, different professions and see the different interventions and get that feedback um, of, of who does well with what. Um, I guess I'll ask a question which sounds like I'm trying to get a bit of gossip or controversy, but I promise I'm not. R- ridiculous pain, so sciatica is such a complicated thing. You can come at it from any different angle. 
you know you can look at it from this way that way so everyone's kind of got their own understanding of, of what it is um do you find like there's ever any difficulty talking to either like within with, with different physios or to different professions and trying to get your understanding to match up with theirs like does that ever like a communication problem um not necessarily with sciatica i don't think i mm-hmm. think um when so when you when pe- when i get new people come into ed and working in ed mm-hmm. i always say to them you have to flip your mindset so in a physio clinic in a band five physio clinic mm-hmm. everything's the, the the probably you know what what it says on the tin the patient's most patients self-select all this FCPs tell stuff is telling us most patients choose to go to the right place mm. and by nature of the fact that the patient has chosen to come to ED you've got to assume that it's something bad and, and knock that off before you go backwards I know one of um, the consultants said to me when I first started many years two, 2004 in ED is like Michelle every headache that comes is a subarach until proven otherwise Mm -hmm. and that's kind of so your mentality has to be completely flipped in ed um in everything i'm ruling out the most serious stuff and getting to the 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 simple stuff whereas i think in a physio clinic you're starting with the simple stuff and okay you check your red red flags but but you know what what does sue greenhouse says one a gp sees one cord iguana in their whole career so you know it's it's not a lot whereas we're starting at that end and bringing it down so you have to flip your mindset from a physio mindset to where the patient has self-selected ed here um mm-hmm. type mindset um from a so from a back and ridiculous pain i think everybody is on pretty much on the same hymn sheet mm-hmm. um the surgeons very much look for what they call a surgical target so they want imaging they won't do anything without imaging quite rightly you know they're not going to cut anybody open with that without imaging um and they very much talk about surgical targets and and true compression and um and that language is is you kind of pick that up as, as you spend sort of time with them mm-hmm. but it's also very apparent in the national back pain pathway literature as well they, they talk about a surgical targets and um, and so we now in our cat service we we talk about that as well because yeah. I think it is important that we're all using the same language throughout um, with with each other as as opposed to don't get um, patient language is, yeah. is a whole different, a different thing, thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and and just briefly, is it easy to define surgical target or is it more of a you know it when you see it type of thing? But clinically or radiologically? Radiologically. Um, yes. So uh, we've got fantastic neuro radiologists who. Um, report all the MRs mm. so mm-hmm. they very much will will talk about root compression mm-hmm. or uh, sort of it could be impinging or touching the root but they will use the word compression if there's a true nerve root compression um they will very much use that word we we have regionally there are musculoskeletal radiologists who, who report who who um don't quite use the same terminology and and then we get regional referrals from um msk teams that that you know aren't sure oh, oh look it says that there's there's s1 involvement well yeah it says that s1 potentially could be mm-hmm. could be being touched a little bit but actually it's not compressed there's nothing that needs decompressing it, it's just you know that the disc is there and, and irritating things so um yeah i think our neuroradiologists are great 
we um as a as a service we so aside from sort of ed flip side of my job is to be a link person between the msk service um and the spinal service as, as well i'm sure we'll come on to the national back pain pathway but but kind of as, as part of that um and we've recently taken on taken on is not the right word um what's the word joined three different yeah. trusts combined i don't know and so one of the cat services that that don't have a spinal surgical center um i'm now going out doing some mdts with them and finding that quite a bit that their radiologists will um, report things like crowding of the cord requina and, okay. and you know it, actually that's not helpful yeah um from a and, and i think this is why as advanced practitioners we need to look at well, i'm not saying we should be radiologists but we should be looking at the imaging with the report and not just acting on a report um and that's part of my role within the msk services to to do that and, and help and um i'm not a surgeon but hopefully i've got a bit of a surgical eye having um just by osmosis of spending so mm. much time with surgeons possibly mm. so you were, you were saying you, you've kind of uh quite um comfortably sort of adapted their their language and, and their way of, way of seeing that and you feel like everyone's on the same page from that point of view yeah i don't think as physios we're far away from their language at all mm-hmm. um i think with some of the other stuff we may be mm-hmm. um so you know with with, with uh, more some of the the psychological stuff i think i think we're we've we use a biopsychosocial model far more the surgeons are still via biomedical um so i think on on those side of things we're, we're not quite as close as we would mm-hmm. as we could be but i think with the with the discs and the root compression absolutely i think as physios we we mm-hmm. do talk the same language as them and mm-hmm. um, i had a conversation with one of them recently about neurodynamics and and he's like what's that mean oh, um, yeah. <laughs> there's the odd little thing that we as physios throw in and, and yeah. they're like no idea what you're talking about yeah um but generally i think we do very similar things to them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and you mentioned the the let me get this right national low back pain pathway yes so um i'm sure most people are, are aware of um the the national low back pain pathway it was mm-hmm. um set up in the northeast um dermot ferguson charles greenoff um and a couple of other people up in the northeast um looked at the nice guidelines um it was it came out with the new nice guidelines in 2016 really as a, as a as a full thing and they basically wanted to do some work looking at patients being at the center so back pain patients um that are moved around here there and everywhere um they they go to physio they I hate the term, but they fail physio, whatever mm-hmm. that means. It's not a test. I don't know how you can fail it, but um, they, they, you know, they don't do well with their physio. They mm-hmm. then go back to their GP. They then come back to whoever. They may go to a spinal surgeon. They may be on a waiting list for six months to see a spinal surgeon who tells them they don't need an operation. And then they're back at square one and don't know mm-hmm. where they're going. And nobody's taking overall responsibility um, mm-hmm. for these patients. And they um, at that point felt, actually, we, we need this is what we're crying out for. You know, 90 percent of back pain patients don't need to see, see a surgeon. And who's managing this this cohort? And again, as physios, we should be jumping up and down saying 
we're the people to do this mm-hmm. um and Dermot and his team up there absolutely did I think they might have a nurse practitioner on their team as well which you know absolutely fair enough uh, it can be any profession and you know it could be osteo Cairo anybody who's trained in MSK could could deliver that service but it, it, it's focused on somebody taking responsibility for these patients um getting them to physio if need be or, or treating them yourself getting them back, imaging them if need be, getting them back, speaking to the surgeons, getting them back, um, early access to injections, that that type of thing. Um, and that's that was the sort of vision that they mm-hmm. set up in, in the northeast. Um, and we have a similar sort of service. And there's lots of places saying that they're doing this service. It's really interesting. I know that mm-hmm. Claire Ryan's paper um, this week it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Claire's great. She's doing a, um, a, a an NIHR funded sort of research project, and Claire came to talk to me before she started. Um, and it's really interesting. Her paper talks still about this sporadic care that the patients are getting, mm-hmm. and so people are saying they're ticking the box of doing the national back pain pathway, mm-hmm. but actually the pathway isn't just about ticking the box and having these services. It's about having practitioners that are skilled enough to to manage this cohort of patients. And if they do see a surgeon and, and they get told they don't need an operation, pick them back up again and, and carry yeah. on. And, and, mm-hmm. and you know, you're, you're the one. Somebody's got to be responsible for. for Well, obviously, the patient has to be responsible, um, but but they don't. They need help sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the pathway is about providing that, really. Mm. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we from so we have with those these patients that are, are in the cat service i'm kind of the surgical link if you like to them so they may okay. if they do imaging um we'll either look at it together or um if it needs to discuss with a surgeon i can find a surgeon that day and say what do you think about this mm-hmm. um so it's it's quite quick and it means that there's no lengthy wait for that surgical opinion that may or may not offer them anything mm-hmm. um so we, we kind of have that system um the other side to it is we have the early access to injection um arm which is a really important arm i think of the the pathway um i think you and i have had a conversation on twitter about mm. injections um because there was a there was there was a paper that, that said it made no difference but i think it was last year wasn't it um so that that was a i think it was a, a quite more recent cochrane review which i haven't read yet but the, the yeah. conclusion was very lukewarm. It said small, not necessarily significant difference. Uh, I haven't unpacked it. Um, so it, it, I think, yeah, it said it said not a great deal of difference. But I think that what they said is the ten percent improvement in the mm. patients who have an injection. Um, and I think that it, it it depends on when you read it. It's about uh, what's done with that. Mm-hmm. So. We, we, you know, a bit like everything, you've got a frozen shoulder, you inject it, unless you give them physio, it's probably yeah. not going to get better. Mm-hmm. And and the same with, with these injections. So a lot of the people in that review, they had their injections, some got better, absolutely. But they didn't have anybody picking them up and doing the rehab sort of with that. Um, and you know, when, when you've, when people have been in ac- acute agony, mm-hmm. then it's, it's a, they might need education to get those muscles functioning normally again to allow them to otherwise if you've got abnormal movement patterns mm-hmm. potentially you're going to get the same same problem and mm-hmm. and um so i think i'm a, a real key believer that all these things that we put in place have got to be joined up mm-hmm. um so we we have 
we do have the early access to injection pathway and we when we set it up um because i know in devon um i've forgotten her name now the physio there is a physio down there doing it, it was patrick Hurrigan, um and one of his colleagues has taken that over now and she actually does the injections which is okay absolutely commendable yeah um, and we i me and vic dickens went on the course to do them and that was going to be the plan um and it was at the same time as facet joint injections being decommissioned mm. so one of our anaesthetists um said to me i'd done the course and was doing work around consent and that's where i was up to and he's like michelle do you want to lose sleep doing these injections where you might hit somebody's nerve mm-hmm. or do you want me to just do them for you because i'm losing <laughs> all my facet joints so actually i'm gonna have space yeah. here I was like, brilliant happy days yeah. so um so he he again politics of of doctors he he won't take them from the surgeons prescribing an injection but if if they've come through our service he's happy for me to consent them and mm-hmm. he'll confirm consent um and he saves me one slot a week in case it's mm-hmm. needed um so they get done really quickly but then mm-hmm. they get therapy so mm-hmm. it, you know I, I when i see them and consent them i talk to them about how it's it's not about this injection absolutely should give you a window of opportunity but and the steroid may cure it don't get me wrong it, mm, it mm. may cure it but mm. it but it may not and when you're in when the pain's improved that's when you need to start working on your rehab and getting yeah. things going again um and, am so, i right in saying that the injection is or, or that the, the the pathway encourages injections and the guidelines particularly for acute cases um, yeah we don't do so chronic mm. cases that need injecting they go to the pain center and they mm. they i like i say i don't really get involved in anything yeah. chronic particularly yeah. um so yeah so they go to the pain center and get managed it, a, a consultant and or mm. you know an advanced practitioner in expert in pain management makes a decision if the injection is the right mm. route to go down for that patient so yeah so we see acute ones that that mm. we we pick up um and try and I think the problem is when I've never had acute ridiculous pain, um, but obviously I see a lot of people who have, and it, it, it they describe it as a, as a toothache down the whole of your leg, mm-hmm. and it, it, they are in absolute agony, and they would chop their leg off if they yep. could. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the the Cochrane review did say that there was very few side effects. So actually, you know, as a I I would do anything to help this horrendous pain i'm in um is it a good option quite possibly mm-hmm. um yeah so so yes yeah, so that's the the pathway yeah. that we have for those and, and i think oh i was planning to um we do a, a bit of a journal club type episode on that review actually because to me one of the key questions as i said i haven't read it properly yet is were the patients included did, did they have acute pain um because it strikes me if you if you kind of mix together acute and chronic or there were studies in there that where patients had chronic radicular pain they're much less likely to recover and it's not particularly what we would want to be doing anyway um but i was curious about um what factors influence your decision to uh, recommend or refer for an injection um, presumably the pain uh, and anything else would come into it so um anybody who's got neurology so motor weakness of, of three out of, so four out of five i think can be pain inhibition and we we often see that is that there's there's some pain inhibition with with um because they're in agony anybody with three out of five or less 
we we don't especially if there's a disc correlating that that would the surgeons would get involved mm. um and our surgeons get involved very quickly in those patients and they kind of see that as one step down from quadriquina syndrome mm -hmm. so they you know it's not necessarily an ed today job but actually that that needs a discussion pretty quickly mm. um to 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 try and get the best possible outcome um evidence-wise that the 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 that may not be what what the evidence you know some of the evidence says you've got a window of opportunity six to 12 weeks and mm. but actually if we're following things that it's probably six weeks by the time a lot of them have got a scan anyway so then mm -hmm. and it, it is an emergency so yeah so our surgeons treat weakness as a as a big deal um and would would get the knife to those a lot quicker mm. um if the nerve is compressed rather than the just being irritated by the disc again that's sometimes it, it depends so the pathway that we have set up is that i will discuss before i before they go down the injection pathway um i discuss the case with the images with one of the spinal surgeons um because some of them he's like that one might need an operation bring mm. them to our clinic because they, they need that that discussion um so every single case get goes through the eyes of a surgeon before we decide to go down this route. Now, it doesn't mean that surgery is not going to be an option in the future if things recur. Um, we, we they try and avoid surgery for um, a good at least three months after an injection because of the risk of infection. Um, but the patient, that's one of the discussions in in consenting. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it's it's the ones that are in absolute agony. When we first set it up, I was saying young people who are working and it's affecting their ability to work. Yeah. Um, the, the pain, the anaesthetist who does the injections is like, that's prejudice. You can't do that. It's got to be oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. anybody who, you know, you can't say, oh, it's just these people. Um, yeah. I obviously wanted it to be successful. And I was like, let's pick the cream of the crop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's so we so it's anybody with acute ridiculous pain and a disc that correlates with that pain. If there's nothing on the scan, then we wouldn't put them down the injection route okay so the the, the way that can the, the mri might change things is if there's a disc that correlates with the pain then then you're more likely to recommend an injection yeah uh, and so what what's the reason behind if there's no disc then less likely for an injection is it because the diagnosis is more ambiguous or yeah 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 mm. absolutely and there's not you know if it absolutely we 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 still to some extent, I think once you're going down the road of a, a, a medical intervention, um, mm -hmm. a, a physical mechanical intervention, mm -hmm. you have to go down that biomedical model a little bit more Absolutely, in, in yeah. the decision making process. So um, if there was nothing on the imaging that, that was was causing the pain, you know, if you've got someone who's got you might do nerve conduction studies, there might be something else that's mm -hmm, that's causing mm -hmm. it. You might want to look into that in more detail. Um, there's a few we've had a few pelvic tumours that have, have had what presents as ridiculous pain but it's yeah. not so we they they probably need more looking at as to see mm -hmm. what's going on really mm -hmm. um so yeah so we wouldn't necessarily mm -hmm. start shoving a needle in those people yeah and then with the loss of motor function this is the kind of cut off point beyond which and is it just motor function you're interested in it, yeah so yeah. um sensory loss we we tend to we the surgeons tend to not hugely be too concerned about mm -hmm. um that said we've done my research into quadriquina syndrome has shown that that's quite important mm -hmm. um but yeah we, we from a early surgical intervention they look at motor function mm -hmm. 
most of them say, you know, if 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 there's a chance that you're going to have a foot drop for the rest of your life and you're in your 30s, 40s, mm-hmm. you'd want me to do something, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. And they, to be fair, the surgeons I work with treat patients as they would want to be treated themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's the way they look at it is, is you know, if it's if you're young and fit and healthy and it's going to affect you, absolutely mm-hmm. we'll give you that mm-hmm. option. Um, so, yeah. And, and then just in terms of... Um, maybe I'm framing this the wrong way and, and just tell me, but do, would you feel like most um, surgeries within your the system you work in are done in terms of saving motor function or to uh, relieve pain? Um, or, or is it, is that not the right, really the right way of putting it? No, I think, um, so it's interesting stuff. Um, we, I, what, so the ones that come to, we're kind of more on the, the the sort of slight, they might not hit my sort of remit, if you like. So I, we, as a tertiary spinal centre, we get referrals from the whole of the northwest of England. Um, pretty much we have a massive catchment area. Um, so I will see local Salford patients. I'll be, I may be, I'll be involved in their care. I'll see people who come to our ED. But the rest of the region, uh, you know, may get to a surgeon and, and I won't necessarily know mm-hmm. anything about it. Mm-hmm. um and we've recently with the covid situation um there's I, i'm not sure people are aware but obviously um physiotherapists that were third years if they had their clinical hours were allowed to graduate early and um so as part of that the covid pot which i don't know where that money comes from is mm-hmm. um funding jobs for for some of these people um, so we've got two brand new BAM fives who are funded by COVID for, for three months. Um, we've not never had BAM fives in our team. We, you know, we're, we're a fans practice team. And I was like, this is a fantastic opportunity. Let's look at all these discs that are listed. Um, so they've they've it's like a three month paid elective, I feel like, for these, mm-hmm. these two. And they're absolutely brilliant, the pair of them. Um, so what they've done is they've looked at all the patients that have been listed for a discectomy. And they found that 50% of those people had never had physio. Ah. So they've gone from wherever, GP or wherever, mm-hmm. they've hit a surgeon, the surgeons offered them surgical intervention, and they've never had rehab. Yeah. Um, and I was absolutely amazed by that. Mm-hmm. Um, like I say, some of them may be our local patients, but the majority of them are from, from the region. And I think this is the difficulty with 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 back pain in general, is that a GP's got that many choices of what they mm. can do with these patients. They can send them to physio. They can send them to CATS or an interface service. They can send them to a spinal surgeon. They can send them to an orthopedic spinal, a neurosurgeon. They can mm. send them to a neurologist. They can they can do whatever they want with these people. And I think the, the National Back Pain Pathway is about saying, actually, let's have one system. Let's have yeah. one service that, that manages all these people. Um, so yeah, so the the the, the Banfires now that's their task is is video consultations to to actually yeah. get some of these people some physio and the surgeons are on board with it. Surgeons are like, I bet we could get some of them off the list, and you know that's when if they don't need an operation, mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. but equally that's not what we're doing it for. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do mm-hmm. for these yeah. patients to make sure that they they've had rehab. Um, so yeah, so patients there's quite a lot of them there's quite a lot that get listed um for discectomy and they i think it was traditionally seen as sort of a a straightforward thing with no huge risks and i think Mm. generally as from a 
when you're a, a neurosurgeon or, or a spinal surgeon doing such complex stuff, it, it probably doesn't have a great deal of risk. Um, but the risk of recurrence is far higher than not having an operation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's about having those kind of conversations with, with the patients. And we one of the surgeons is like, I'm going to do a webinar for them all as well because, you know, I want them all to have had the same information. And mm-hmm. um, so we're just in the sort of process of doing that at the minute. But I think I'm not sure if I've answered your question. In, uh, the yeah, it definitely like gives it um, some some context. I think it was a bit of an odd question anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, it was more of, of this thing of, I think, from my perspective, I don't think that the role of a discectomy or microdiscectomy for saving nerve function is that controversial. Oh, it is. I'm sure people could argue about it, but um, I don't think it's that controversial. Um, but then the, the thing of, well, for the actual pain, so if, someone, if someone's yeah. not had got sort of progressive or marked neurology, then it's a, a much more difficult decision um and sort of the the bird's eye view of the evidence as far as i understand it is it can help you get better a bit quicker but that and you know there's probably lots of con- uh, sort of different parts of that and exceptions and things but that's such a hard decision to make um, and and do you so from in your role which is very specialized do you find you yourself referring many people just on the basis of that pain um so the the our this don't so we've got 27 neurosurgeons and 12 mm-hmm. orthopedic spinal surgeons that I work with. So the spectrum is massive. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them, um, the the probably yeah, oh, I don't know how to describe them, but some some of them will do an. So with the ones that have got pain and pain, the, this excruciating pain. Some of them will say, okay, I want to do an injection first because I want to make sure that this operation is going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And, and if an injection doesn't, so when you do a, an injection, a, 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 new, a root block, transpraminal epidural, you, they put in local anesthetic and, and steroids. So obviously they numb it, they then put the local into the area and the steroid into the area. So theoretically, you should get a bit like when you inject a shoulder, you should get some relief with the local that will last 12, 24 hours, depending on Mark Ains, 12 hours or, or whatever they use. Um, and then the steroid should kick in further down the line. If, as a, with some of their reasoning, if the, you've seen no difference with that, then an injection is probably not going to help you. Mm-hmm. Because and unless there's a huge, huge disc that, you know, an injection isn't going to make a difference, mm-hmm. that, that's a different ballgame. But you, you, you smaller discs that are, ambiguous is is this a compressive lesion that's causing your problem um that's the way that a lot of them will will go with their reasoning mm. um as we know that the the roots that have been compressed for a while become hyper excitable um and so is that a reason that some people don't get long-term term relief after discs mm. quite mm. possibly um and like i say the recurrence rate is is high i'm not sure what what bass quote it as at the minute but it's certainly higher than leaving it alone um, okay yeah yeah so yeah and, and and so we've covered these different kind of features of the the guidelines and the, the pathway in terms of um injections operations we've kind of touched on both of those and kind of the last one which is a bit of a black hole for me in terms of actual experience is 
uh, medications. So my, I'm not sure what the pathway says about this, but the guidelines kind of refer, the NICE guidelines refer to the neuropathic pain guidelines. They kind of say, oh, we don't we really want to talk about that in these. Yeah. But then there's a lot, a lot of reviews that conclude, rightly or wrongly, that um, anti-neuropathics don't work for sciatica. Um, so that's a really difficult point of practice is where where do we go there? So I'm wondering what your clinical experience is. Yeah, so I, I think um, it's really hard, isn't it? Because the, the NICE guidelines say, um, you know, that paracetamol doesn't work. Well, OK, it probably doesn't. But what it says is paracetamol alone. So actually, if I've pulled my back at the gym and I've got a bit of a niggle and maybe some radiating pain into my buttock, but I've, I've not got a chew and I take some paracetamol and then I exercise and get it moving, mm-hmm. it, it may well work. But if I don't take the paracetamol, I might not do that exercise. Mm-hmm. So I think to, you know, nobody's, I don't think any of these things we as physios are saying, do this alone. Yep. We're saying do it to, to get you going and get you moving. Um, the NICE guidelines talk about NSAIDs. And I think, again, we don't know the path the pathology of, of, of what happens, the, the physiology necessarily. We can... We assume it. Mm. Um, NSAIDs do seem to make a difference. When people come into ED in absolute agony, um, we often use PR diclofenac. And that seems to, because of the absorption of the mucous membranes around the anus, that that seems to have a really good, quick effect, more so than IV morphine often mm. um, as, a, as a, right, brilliant, let's get some of this, this information down. So, yeah, so your non-steroidals, but then they've been poo-pooed recently, haven't they? In, um, was it the it was the BMJ update? Yeah, that was, I think it was axial low back pain, yeah. Mm. Right, was it? Okay. So, yeah, so I think absolutely you've got your, your non-steroidals. Um, mm. You've then got your moving towards your, so if we go down the sort of opioid route before we go on to the neuropathics, um, your, your codeines, your tramadols, and then moving on to your, 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 um, your oxycodones and your morphines. Absolutely. A generic painkiller can can help. My huge, huge bugbear with these is the constipation. Mm-hmm. Um, and as as practitioners, I absolutely I'm on my soapbox now. But mm-hmm. prescribe codeine without either counseling somebody about a high fiber diet or prescribing Senna is just because if you've got back pain mm-hmm. and you get constipated, it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and the number of them, pa- these patients that I see that come to ED that have, uh, are then in retention. So mm-hmm. they're constipated, the, the, the fecal loading causes their bladder to, to not function properly. And then we go down, they get a scan for query code because you can't not scan them. Yeah. Um, but actually, they need an enema and they need to take something with their codeine. Mm-hmm. So um, as prescribers, I, you know, I'm a non-medical prescriber. All our advanced practitioners are non-medical prescribers. Um, I think it, to do codeine without talking about diet or, or center is 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 shootable. Mm. Um, so, but yeah, that's just on my the ones that come in. Yeah. Um, the neuropathics, I think, are, are really interesting. Um, when I first started in sort of this role, and from cats as well, I've worked in a cat service prior to to coming into to this job. We use the gabapentinoids a lot, uh, a lot. For anybody with neuropathic pain, we would go down a gabapentinoid route um, and they did seem to make a difference. They uh, even 
you know, it's the, the, the guidance tells us, and I always would say to patients, it can take two weeks to, to kick in. But even ED, we're in a combination with a generic painkiller, an NSAID, and the gabapentinoid, they seemed to get notice a difference. And I would always try and avoid morphine where possible. Um, but it, it did seem to make a difference. Now, when the legislation changed, so before the legis legis legislation on gabapentinoids changed, there was an MRHA alert came out to say, you know, these are now the street drug of choice. They're mm. being sold on black market. And, and that raised a few alarm bells. So my prescribing practice changed a little bit with certain groups of patients and, 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 and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, then when the legislation changed, they, as physiotherapists, we can no longer prescribe those independently. Um, and we, we can't with codeine either, uh, just mm. to I'm at all just to sort of clarify in case everybody thinks I'm I'm prescribing those independently. Yeah. I'm not. Um, we're de again we're dead lucky in A and E. We've got a great MDT around us. Mm -hmm. We can use clinical management plans. We can we can do whatever needs needs to happen. But what it did is it raised a few flags as okay. So this has been reclassified. They're not just going to reclassify a drug for no reason. There, mm -hmm. There's a reason that, that it's going to be reclassified. And actually, that's because it's a dangerous drug. And so looking at that and looking at the pharmacokinetics and the, the side effects and everything else, um, I do prescribe it less since it's been reclassified. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that, you know, the nice guidelines for neuropathic pain do say the gabapentinoids make yep. a difference. Mm -hmm. So, so, so that's the, the those that you've then got your tricyclics. So your amitriptyline is a tricyclic antidepressant. So as a different mechanism, mm -hmm. um, those those haven't been reclassified. So those were originally antidepressants. They've not been licensed for neuropathic pain, but we think them to be safe. And the dose is often a lot lower for neuropathic mm -hmm. pain. Um, the amitriptylines, from what patients have, have told us, they they have quite a hangover effect. Mm -hmm. So you, you take them at night um, and quite often patients find that in the morning they're still pretty drowsy. And so for patients that were working and still active, I've always veered towards the gabapentinoids purely for that reason, mm -hmm. as opposed to any efficacy of, of one over the other. Um, but I have to say I'm going more back to the amitriptylines a, a little bit more um, since the recent paper that said gabapentin was rubbish. I can't remember which one that was now wasn't that long ago was it something came out saying gabapentin was there was a big yeah i know i know yeah, i think there was a big one that said it was rubbish for everything although that might have been pregabalin and then there's been lots of little ones that say it's rubbish for sciatica yeah yeah um, so but you know patients seem to yeah absolutely when these patients are in agony anything that can take the edge off i think mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and with some of these studies it what cohort are they looking at? Are they yeah. looking at chronic pain or are they looking at somebody who's, mm -hmm. you know, my cohort have come to ED with acute agony mm -hmm. and I've got to do something to get them moving because what I do know is that the, if they stay in bed, they're going to get a DVT, they're going to get, you know, mm -hmm. there's other risks of them and then and it'll never get better. Mm -hmm. It will become more hypersensitive. So what we do know is that movement works. Absolutely that works. But you've got to do what you can to get them moving. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so I, I do use the neuropathics if somebody's got neuropathic pain. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of patients out there and patients that come in with axial back pain that have been put on neuropathics, um, and, yeah. and I may take them off or help mm -hmm. them wean back down because there's there's no. I think there's been a muddled message 
and that's perhaps where where we've got uh, got the problem with with that mm -hmm. there is the other drug that we do use um i want to say a lot but that's it's probably not a lot is is um diazepam mm -hmm. um so again absolutely zero evidence for its efficacy in, in back pain however if somebody's got acute muscle spasm um sometimes you you we've got to get them off the trolley and got to get them out of out of the department um so we we do sometimes use that as well mm. um so we probably prescribe more than than a lot of people but i think we're in a different environment yeah it's, it's really interesting to hear that perspective because I, I mean i've worked in a persistent pain service where some days gabapentin was just the bane of my life because i i could not understand why everybody was on it um but in a different setting with different sort of reasoning process and, and i echo what you say about the the evidence i think you always feel like you're on dangerous territory criticizing evidence because um, you you don't want to align yourself to people who would just ignore this stuff yeah and, and it's kind of you don't want to sound like it's special pleading like oh, i want to keep doing my thing but i don't think i have a special I don't have a horse in that race. I'm not fond of gabapentin. Yeah. And yet I tend to see come out on the same side as you, which is the, the trials don't, what you'd really want to see, and I'm sure someone, or I hope someone will tell me if this exists and I haven't seen it, is people with acute, but not only acute, but neuropathic um, radicular pain. Because uh, very often they don't really look at that. The, 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 one of the recent ones, um, the Matheson study, a lot of people in that study did not have neuropathic pain judging by those questionnaires so you, you really want to kind of see what happens with those people before you throw out the I'm going to say it the baby with the bathwater. yeah uh, absolutely and I think that's the thing a lot of a lot of like you say absolutely I'm happy to follow the evidence but a, a lot of a lot of stuff talk, it, it's what's acute and I don't know the answer to that you know what are we classing less than six weeks as acute are we classing mm -hmm. less than 12 months as acute what's what's acute and and what's then you know what i think there is a, a huge huge i think there's a misunderstanding of what radicular pain is and what radiating pain is mm -hmm. and i think that that generally and um with the quadriquiner things that are, are being discussed at, at the minute and i don't know you, you probably saw the whole um disconnect with connect with um mm -hmm. chris mm -hmm. and laura and, and i was in uh, the trenches at connect during that were you <laughs> so again i maybe controversial but i i think that, that the disconnect there for me was the wording because people kept switching from bilateral leg pain mm -hmm. to bilateral radicular pain now nobody has said that bilateral leg pain mm -hmm. is a red flag for cord equina Mm -hmm. bilateral radicular pain absolutely 100 percent is mm -hmm. and and the difficulty is that that um, i get them sent into ed patients who've got pain in both buttocks that's probably just coming from their back query mm -hmm. cordoquina it's bilateral it's not ridiculous yeah. pain is it and mm -hmm. and that's the wording is 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 so there's a bit about the wording but there's a bit about the clinical understanding as mm -hmm. of, of that as well um, and I think that's the same with the gabapentinoids is that patients are being put on these drugs when they haven't got true radicular pain. And so in some of this work, who's done that assessment to say that the pain is actual true mm. radicular pain? Is that mm. an FY1 in ED 
who you know has, has maybe never seen back pains before or, or is that someone who's hugely experienced in in managing these patients and mm-hmm. um it's difficult to ascertain that sometimes when you read the papers mm-hmm. yeah absolutely i agree let's see i feel like at the beginning of this conversation i really wanted to get uh, an, an idea um of kind of what sort of system you work in and how that is good for your your patients basically and i feel like i've got an understanding of if i was a patient what might happen for me and why that would be different to elsewhere and i really wanted to get your perspective on what, what you called off mic the black boxes you know of, or what, what were for me black boxes what really happens when someone goes for that operation because i don't see them again um, so that's been really valuable um, do you think there's anything anything that we haven't covered as we've spoken or, or anything you'd really like to chat about um no, I don't think so. I think we've kind of gone through most of the the pathway stuff and um and, and where and and I think I think as we, as we move into advanced practice roles, I think there's there's certain uh, you come across this perception that that you're you you know you're no longer a physio and you're you're too skilled to talk about rehab and 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 actually you know it's making every contact count and Mm -hmm. and health promotion and rehab and that is what we're experts in and i think that no matter where the patient is in the journey that's we've got to be giving that message and 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 we that's kind of a a big part of it i think is be proud to be a physio Mm -hmm. um and that that's i think yeah really really important yeah sounds like a good note to end on um it sounds good to me um michelle it was an absolute pleasure thank you so much for your time and no worries no worries thank you so much appreciate it Take thanks care. tom bye